I'm not a brilliant comic, nor am I a mastermind music producer who helps make an artistic transition very deep and meaningful. I'm just a schnook. Hi, everybody. This is Sean, and this is Autobiography of a Schnook. Just so you know that your podcast feeder didn't mess up and actually give you a different podcast, I just wanted to tell you that. So, uh, Or maybe your podcast feeder did mess up and gave you a different podcast. Like You might have been hoping that this is the Toilets Around the World podcast. Sorry, but it's not. But anyway, thank you for uh, listening regardless. And yeah, this is a weird time right now in which we're living. And it just now occurred to me that chapter 19 falls right in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis that we're experiencing throughout the world. And it's kind of weird. It's not much of a crisis for me yet, at least. Uh, I, so far, am fine. I haven't experienced any symptoms. I could could be carrying it and just don't have any symptoms. I don't know. But uh, the company I worked for issued a work-from-home mandate originally through the end of March, but then they said, actually, let's make it through the end of April. We're going to take it piece by piece. My wife is a teacher, as I've mentioned before, and uh, Lisa's been home too. She's home until probably at least April 21st. And what was weird is that when all this stuff was starting to go down, everybody was telling people, stay home, work from home if you can, don't spread the virus. But meanwhile, the medical expert that represented Chicago Public School, either the city of Chicago or Chicago Public Schools, said there's no reason for schools to close, despite the fact that they didn't want people gathering together and these classrooms have 30-plus kids in them. The reasoning was that kids are resilient. They bounce right back from things, Well, which is fine, but number one, that's not necessarily true. A medical expert should know that it doesn't matter how young you are. If you get sick, you're not necessarily going to be as lucky as everybody else who recovers pretty quickly. And number two, this is a very spreadable virus. And yeah, the kids might not be as much affected to it, but let's say they go home and give grandma a hug. Then what do you do? But the governor ordered all schools in the state to be shut down. And I think that the city of Chicago was kind of uh, not too thrilled with that, with uh, basically the state going over their heads. But hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It is what it is. And uh, hopefully this isn't affecting too many of you very much. Uh, Thankfully, it's not affecting me financially. It's not affecting Lisa financially. Uh, We're kind of hanging in there. You know, we're doing our best. And I'm an endorsement as it is, so it's not really affecting me that much. I get to work from home, and I'll tell you, I really don't miss the commute. It's I, I, I don't go far for my commute, but still, I don't miss commuting. I don't miss getting in a smelly CTA red line train. Uh, I don't miss riding my bike to work and just going as fast as I can to make sure I get there on time. I, I don't miss that right now. I'm, I'm doing okay so far. And again, I'm, I'm an endorsement. So, Hey, any excuse to stay inside? Great. I got plenty of video games to occupy me. I have musical projects. I have podcasts to do. So I'm set and I like to read too. So that helps. I'm currently reading ready player one. Lisa and I went to a book sale a couple of weeks ago, and there was this big stack of Ready Player One books, and I always meant to read it, and it was uh, they were marked five bucks, but the store was having a 50% off sale, so it was only 250 
I figured, geez, even if I don't like it, I'm not blowing a lot of money. So uh, I was done looking for books. Lisa was not done. So I kind of camped out in the seating area where they had. The store was open books, by the way. I believe it's in Pilsen, if I remember correctly. That's the um, very Hispanic neighborhood in Chicago that's becoming quite popular lately. And I'm sitting there in open books and I just read like the introductory chapter and I got sucked in. I'm really, really digging the book so far. I think I'm on chapter 15 now, really digging it. I wanted to read it so I can watch the movie and be disappointed by the movie. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, that's, that's my life so far. Just keeping on, keeping on. Uh, the dog's been sleeping through this whole coronavirus thing, which is fine. She likes to sleep. But hey, I want to do a freaking podcast, so I'm going to shut up with this preamble and get you some content. And what's interesting is I was actually kind of typing up notes as to how to do a podcast. And then a friend of mine talked about how he was thinking of doing a podcast. So I figured that's good impetus for me to actually flesh it out and talk about it here on Autobiography of a Schnook. Mind you, this segment is just on how to do a podcast, not how to do it well, necessarily. I'm just telling you how to make it happen. Here's how I recommend doing a podcast. There have been many times when I mentioned the other podcast I host, Pie Factory Podcast. For those of you who've never heard it, my friend Jim and I discuss two classic arcade video games in each episode, and at the end, we reveal a theme that ties those two games together. We do some research on each of the games, and we talk about what we found out, what we learned, and while we're at it, we talk about our memories of playing these games back in the 80s. While we get mostly good feedback about the podcast, we did find an arcade gaming forum in which somebody was trashing Pie Factory. To be honest, bad reviews don't bother me. I actually welcome them as um, I look for it as an opportunity for improvement. But this review of our podcast really ticked us off because the person who posted the message accused Jim and me of never even having set foot in an arcade before, which, of course, could be no further from the truth. Another comment from that posting had a barb that went something like, I guess it doesn't take much these days to have a podcast. Regarding that comment, I believe it was our friend Ferg, who you may remember joined me for Chapter 5. Ferg, in our defense, if I remember correctly, said, all you need to do a podcast is just do that. Do a podcast. His overall message to us was, if you want to do a podcast, just shut up and do it. That's all you need. And thinking of his encouragement made me think that it might help if I shared some of my wisdom, or maybe lack thereof. I've seen many articles online that purport to give you podcasting advice, but I'm a bit leery of them. For one thing, the articles all pretty much say the same things, making it seem as if the author is just cribbed from the same source. Also, from what I could tell, none of the authors of these articles actually have ever hosted a podcast in the first place. But you know that you're getting some podcasting thoughts from an experienced podcaster, been doing it for five years. Recording a podcast is actually pretty easy. You simply need a way to record your voice. Even if you just have a portable digital recorder, you already have the requirement. Ideally, though, you'll want a computer and some recording software along with a microphone. And because the podcast will eventually be going over the internet, it will help if the computer can get online, of course. 
probably the most popular recording software for doing podcasts is Audacity. And why is it so popular? Quite simply because it's free to download and use all you want. And it works. It's available for all of the big three platforms, Windows, Macs, and Linux. It's also great for editing, which I'll get to later. If you have a Mac, then you already have some recording software. It's called GarageBand. That's what I usually use to record my podcasts. In fact, I'm using it to record this. I chose to use that one over Audacity because GarageBand has an extensive library of built-in effects, and I use the male narrator enhancement for recording my voice. Uh, uh, women, you'll probably want to consider trying the female narrator enhancement. Audacity does do a good job of recording, don't get me wrong, but using the effects and plugins in GarageBand can uh, really enhance the overall sound of your voice and balance the equalization pretty well. You'll obviously want a microphone as well. My advice is to use a dedicated USB microphone that's suitable for voice recording. If you have a headset that's made for gaming, uh, I'd strongly recommend against using it for podcasting because those headsets are specifically designed for communicating with other players over the internet, and they don't really sound all that good. Invest a few bucks in something made specifically for narration or vocals, and of course I can give a couple of recommendations. When I first started podcasting, I accidentally found out that my Zoom H2 Handy Recorder from 2007 can double as a microphone, and that's actually what I used for the first roughly 20 episodes or so of Pie Factory Podcast. It actually sounded pretty good, not bad for something so old. I since upgraded to a Yeti microphone made by a company called Blue. Blue makes a lot of USB microphones specifically for podcasting. Uh, off the top of my head, I know they make a less expensive model called Snowball, if that's still available. I know my niece used to use that when she hosted a podcast, and I think uh, they use those at Galloping Ghost Arcade outside of Chicago for their podcasts. Uh, it's a pretty popular podcasting microphone. I also invested in a windscreen that clips onto the microphone's base, as well as a wind filter that fits over the microphone itself. That's very important, so you uh, minimize the opping of ease. Uh, without those wind filters, uh, your lips will be a little bit louder than normal, maybe very loud actually. The one thing about the Blue Yeti is that it's really sensitive. If you use the bass that it comes with, then it's highly susceptible to, uh, well, any movement on the tabletop or desktop. It'll pick up everything. The Yeti will pick up any typing, mouse clicking, thumping, knocking, scratching, dropping, any of that stuff you do on the same surface that it's resting on. At the very least, you want to rest the base of the microphone on something soft, like a thick cloth or something that'll absorb as many vibrations as possible. For a while, I used a little crocheted mat that my wife made for me once to dampen the sound of my keyboard because my typing was very loud on my old computer desk. For best results, you want to get a shock mount for the Yeti or really any microphone you use, get a shock mount for it. In case you don't know what that is, a shock mount is something you attach to the microphone that acts as a shock absorber, so those offending vibrations will be significantly reduced, if not entirely eliminated, so you won't hear thumping in your recording. Spider-shaped shock mounts for desktops used to be available for the Yeti for like 40 bucks. You just rest the mount on your desk and then attach the microphone. 
Now, though, if you're lucky enough to find a desktop shock mount meant specifically for the Yeti, uh, the Yeti's mounting equipment is not 100% compatible with all microphone accessories, by the way. Now, you'll likely find a ridiculous price tag of 300 bucks or higher for that, more than double what I paid for this microphone itself. Having said that, though, the cost of the Yeti has drastically dropped. Uh, I recently saw a blue Yeti for sale for under 100 bucks, brand new, and it came with a couple of video games. A couple of years ago, I invested about 90 bucks in a microphone boom arm so that instead of the microphone sitting on the base on the table, it actually hangs over my desk, kind of like what they have in radio stations. What's cool about that is that it clears up some desk space and it also uh, opens the door for different types of shock mounts, uh, like the kind that sit between the microphone and the boom arm. Those are pretty inexpensive, like 20, maybe 30 bucks. Mind you, I've been talking about USB-based microphones, but there are some people who use regular audio microphones connected to some kind of a digital converter. If you go this way, make sure you use a quality microphone with an XLR connector and that the digital converter has an XLR port. Uh, XLR, by the way, is that big three-prong connector you see on professional microphones. Don't use a standard quarter-inch or eighth-inch audio connector. Those are prone to interference, and they don't provide for the best audio quality. As for specifically what XLR microphones I recommend, I don't know. I don't know. I, I use USB. Uh, just go onto your favorite search engine and uh, type in good XLR microphone for podcast. <laughs> That'll help you out somehow. But anyway, when you're ready to actually record your audio, there are some recording preferences you'll need to check. I recommend recording at a minimum frequency of 44.1 kilohertz. Usually audio recording software defaults to either that or 48 kilohertz. Make sure the resolution is at least 16 bits. Save the audio as a file in either WAV or AIFF format, not MP3. You'll do the MP3 later on. And please make sure you know exactly where you're saving that audio file so you can find it later. If you're already pretty good at navigating around a hard drive with uh, the operating system, then this should be no trouble to you. If you're using GarageBand to record your raw audio, then use the share option and use the option to save or export it as AIFF or WAVE. Now, you're going to want to edit your file. I'm going to assume that you're going to use Audacity, but just about any audio editor that lets you use multiple audio tracks should work. Mac users... Please do not use GarageBand for this. GarageBand is a digital audio workstation that's meant for recording and producing. It is not meant for editing sounds. A big issue with recording is that your voice might not be at a balanced volume. You may not realize it, but you might be unwittingly moving around during a recording session. Maybe your head's kind of swaying side to side or something. And as a result, the volume of your voice will likely fluctuate during the recording. You'll want to do what's called compressing, making sure the recording is the same volume all the way through. I've never been able to do this right, unfortunately, but thankfully, there's a program that does it automatically, and it's proven to be a lifesaver, and it's called Levelator. Sadly, it's no longer being developed, but it's still available for free for both Windows and Mac. Uh, although if you have a Mac, you won't be able to use Levelator if you're using Catalina, uh, that is Mac OS 10.15, or later. 
but I will put a link to Levelator in the show notes. It's really easy. You run the program and you just drag and drop your audio file into the Levelator window and it automatically does the compression of your audio for you. And it saves the result under a new file name that has the word output in it. And it's going to be in the same directory as your original audio file. So it'll be easy to find. And that is the file you're going to use from now on. The one with the word output in it. So open it up in Audacity and just listen to your recording. One really cool feature of Audacity is that you can actually adjust the playback speed. In the upper right part of the editor, you'll see kind of a secondary play button with a slider. And if you move that slider over to the right and press the corresponding play button, you'll see that the speed plays back faster and you can adjust how fast that speed goes. So you want to adjust the speed to the fastest in which you can still clearly make out what you're saying. And this will save you some time. It'll speed up your editing. Usually I adjust it to about 1.75. So that makes my recording about three quarters faster. This is not a permanent change. It doesn't save your recording at that speed. It just plays it back at that speed. But if you just prefer to listen to yourself in real time, then don't even worry about this step. Just use that main play button on the left. But listen carefully to your recording. Do you stutter a lot? Trim some of that stuttering out as much as you can. Use your mouse or other pointing device to highlight the offending section of the audio and then use the delete key. Are you making mouth noises? Like, is there a lot of this? <sniffs> your listeners don't want to hear that. They want to hear your words, not the other sounds your mouth makes. Trim them out. I don't, I don't know what a good term for this, but ever, if you ever watch your local news, just pay close attention. You'll notice that every time the story changes, whoever is reading the story is going to make this sound. I hate that. I really freaking hate that. Ugh. And there are people who do that constantly. And there are podcasts I actually stopped listening to because of that. So uh, trim that stuff out. Mouth noises we don't want. Words is what we want. Also trim out any unnecessary silent periods too. Like if there's some hesitation, trim out the hesitation. Is there a buzz or any other annoying background sound that's constantly going on in your recording? Well, Audacity has a really cool feature that might help reduce or even eliminate that. Highlight a portion of the recording that has only that background noise. Then pull down the effects menu and choose the option that says either noise removal or noise reduction, depending on the version of Audacity that you use. You're going to get a window listing two steps. In step one, click get noise profile. When you do that, that noise removal window is going to disappear. And when that happens, highlight the entire audio track now and again, pick the noise removal effect. And this time, just click the OK button when the noise removal window comes up. Depending on how big your audio file is, it might take a minute or two to complete the process. But when it finishes, listen to your recording. If it sounds better, you're good to go. But if it sounds worse and you'd rather just deal with the noise, then that's why God made the undo option. That's in the edit menu, or you can just hit Ctrl-Z if you're using Windows or Linux, or Command-Z if you're using Mac. Speaking of background noises, what if between sentences you realize that you dropped something during the recording, or a dog barked and got picked up over the microphone, or some other noise happened that you don't want during that pause? Highlight the unwanted noise, but rather than delete it, use the Generate Silence option via the Generate pull-down menu. 
There's also an icon you can click on that'll do that. Uh, it's hard to describe, but it kind of looks like a barbell. Oh, um, one other thing. Be prepared to not like the sound of your own voice. I forgot to mention that. If you've never really listened to a recording of your voice before, just be prepared. You'll likely cringe upon hearing it. And there's also a reason that people say you're your own worst critic. You might not like the sound of your voice, but chances are other people are perfectly fine with it. Or, um, here's a concept. People might like your voice. Do not let the sound of your own voice prevent you from recording a podcast. What you should be concerned with is speaking clearly and speaking with some inflection. Oh, um, you might have noticed I said use a multi-track audio editor. Why do I say that? Well, because you'll probably want a second audio track, maybe for sound effects, background music, stuff like that. Just copy and paste the sounds and the music you want to include into the second audio track and fade them in and out where appropriate. And also, don't forget to adjust the volume on each little piece you use in that audio track uh, as necessary. If you use Audacity for this, then make sure you connect each piece on the second track with silence, and then join all these pieces together as one complete piece, or else they won't synchronize properly when you export. Anytime you use that generate silence function, they're going to be essentially separate sections. you got to join them, or else it's not going to work properly. You just click on the vertical lines between each piece, and then everything joins together. It's probably easier to show you, but um, sadly for me, uh, luckily for you, uh, this is a audio podcast, so you don't get to see what I see. But anyway, when you're finished editing and you're satisfied that what you hear is what you want to publish for all the world to hear, then export the sound as an MP3 file. If you're using multiple audio tracks, make sure that you highlight every single track. What I do when I use Audacity is I highlight all the tracks by using either the select all option from the edit menu, or I hit control A or command A. Then I pull down the file menu and I choose export selected audio. Uh, some versions of Audacity call it export selection. For the MP3 options, I recommend using a constant bit rate instead of variable. If your podcast is mostly spoken word, uh, such as this one, then you can set the compression quality to 128 kbps. But if your podcast has a lot of music, and music is the main focus of your podcast, you might want to go for a higher rate for better sound. Fill in the appropriate information when you save the MP3. For artist, put whatever name you want your listeners to identify you as. For album, put the name of your podcast. For example, the album that this recording comes from is called Autobiography of a Schnook. Track title should be whatever the short descriptor you want to use for the episode. I usually just call it chapter 19 or something along those lines. Give the file a name that's easy for you to remember. And of course, keep track of where you're saving it because you're going to need to know where to find it when you upload it. And at that point, congratulations, you've just recorded and post-produced a podcast episode. That was the easy part. Well, okay, maybe it's not always easy. The actual recording session is the easy part. The editing is the hard part, but the initial setup is by far the hardest part because you need to do a lot of work to get your podcast prepped and off the ground. For one thing, you'll need some artwork. Come up with a logo or image to use for your podcast. 
Make sure it's a JPEG or PNG file with a size of exactly 1400 pixels by 1400 pixels. That will be displayed on the screen when your podcast is played, and you should also attach it to your podcast MP3 files. There are several utilities out there that will help you do that. Uh, The one that I use on my Mac is called KID3, by the way. Uh, Also, you're going to need a way to distribute the podcast. And to distribute the podcast, you need some web space. Not Dropbox, not Google Drive, but some space that makes it possible to distribute a podcast where you can link where people don't have to sign in. As for me, I'm at kind of an unfair advantage with that because I'm a web developer both by profession and as a hobby, so I have my own web hosting package. I simply use my web hosting space to distribute my podcasts, and then I use WordPress to actually publish them. If you don't have that kind of convenience, though, you might have to spend a little bit of money. Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N, seems to be a pretty popular podcast distributor. I know Ferg uses it. Um, I think uh, Bill at the uh, Atari Bytes podcast, and it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, I think he uses Libsyn. It's only a few bucks a month for a basic package, and it's pretty easy to use. There are some Libsyn packages that also give you statistics in case you want to track uh, how frequently your episodes are downloaded. I think archive.org also has some kind of podcast hosting services that's either cheap or free. Also, you will need some kind of an RSS feed. An RSS feed is used by a lot of news aggregation websites, but it's also used to distribute podcasts. It contains information about your podcast, the name of your podcast, the episode content, the location of the audio file, the location of the artwork, whether or not there's explicit content in the episode, etc., For this podcast, for Autobiography of a Schnook, I have an RSS feed that's built into the website that powers the podcast via a WordPress plugin called PowerPress. For Pie Factory Podcast, we use FeedBurner for the RSS feed, although FeedBurner isn't the most well-loved podcast feeder, but hey, it's free. Once you get all that settled, you'll need to get your podcast distributed. Of course, whatever hosts your podcast, be it Libsyn, WordPress, Archive.org, or your own file hosting site, that host is one way to distribute your podcast. But you'll also want it on the popular podcast providers. Submit it to iTunes, or as it's called now, uh, Apple Podcasts. And because Apple actually inspects podcast submissions manually, it might take a couple of weeks by the time you submit it and the time it appears on the iTunes store or Apple Podcasts, whatever. I've done this three times, and from my experience, it seems that the length of time between submission and approval is basically however busy the folks at Apple are. If it's during a busy holiday season, expect it to take a while. I won't get into actually how to do the submission. You can actually look that up in your favorite search engine. Also, submit your podcast to Google Play for Android listeners. Stitcher is a very popular podcast streamer, so consider submitting to Stitcher, maybe iHeartRadio. You may also want to think about whether you want to charge for your podcasts. Here's a little hint. Unless you're already famous, the answer is no, you do not want to charge for your podcast. Just don't. Yes, it'll likely cost you a little bit of money to do a podcast in the first place, but the fact is, if you're not famous and popular already, nobody's going to want to have to pay to listen to your podcast. In fact, even if you are famous and popular, you still might want to consider distributing it for free. Some podcasters put a PayPal donate button on their sites, 
or just plain give a PayPalable email address in the podcast itself. Other podcasters use a site called Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. The concept of Patreon is that you, the listener, donate money to the content provider, that is, the podcaster, every month. It could be as little as a dollar or as high as you want to go. I don't think there's an upper limit. I've used Patreon for other podcasts, and um, it's quite humbling when you see how many people are actually willing to toss some money in your direction. If you do get people to contribute, consider offering your supporters something extra. Patreon actually has a special feature that allows you to provide content just to your contributors. Or you can just do it yourself. For example, I know of a podcast who offers free t-shirts to Patreon contributors. If you do use Patreon, though, be aware that at least in the United States... They're going to make you fill out a tax form, I think a 1099, which means you will have to provide a social security number, or if you have one, a tax ID. If you get more than $600 in donations in a calendar year, Patreon's going to report that to the IRS, so you're going to get taxed on it. Or if you're shy about directly asking for money, there's some other stuff you can do. You can sell paraphernalia pertaining to your podcast. Redbubble is a popular online store for that, and I think Cafe Press is too if they're still around. You upload your artwork as high resolution as possible, and then people will be able to buy some kind of item with that design. Tote bags, coffee mugs, stickers, notebooks, wall art, panties, uh, not kidding by the way and you get a small percentage of the sales. Just don't be shy about encouraging listeners to help offset your costs. And by the way, if you do accept donations, you really should think about using those donations for just your podcast. Use it for, say, your Libsyn costs. Use it for your hosting fees. Use it to upgrade your recording equipment. Just dedicate it to your podcast because that's why people are giving you money because they like what you do. So use it for that. And if you do give them content that they enjoy, you'll be surprised at how many people are willing to help out. And now that I've said all this, um, it occurs to me that I haven't talked about what to do if you're going to do a podcast with more than one host. Well, that will give you more stuff you need to think about. Will all the hosts be in the same room? If so, then ideally you should get a microphone for each host. It might be easiest just to get standard non-USB audio microphones, the ones with the XLR connections, and invest in a USB mixer because many computers are tricky to configure for multiple USB audio inputs. On a Mac, if you use separate USB microphones, you're going to need to create an aggregate device out of them and then use that single aggregate device as your input. If you don't know how to do this already, it's actually not all that hard. Just look up Mac aggregate device in your favorite search engine. But what if the hosts are not in the same place? Again, I'm going to use Pie Factory Podcast as an example. When Jim and I record, we're about 70, 75 miles apart in our respective homes, and we use Google Hangouts to talk to each other. Uh, you can use Skype or even a phone call for that if you want to do that. Each of us records what we say separately. I use GarageBand to record my end, as I said before, and I think Jim uses Audacity. Then both of our recordings are synchronized in post-production, usually as separate audio tracks, I think, in Audacity. The disadvantage of recording with this technique is that whoever does the editing is going to have to line up two separate recordings so that they sync up properly. 
Usually it helps if the hosts do something at the beginning of the recording to make sure the recordings sync up as they should, like maybe have a count in, as in like three, two, one, zero, and when you say zero, you both hit record. Or you can say have a synchronization question, like one person asks a question and the other person answers it, so that way whoever does your post-production, whether it be you or somebody else, can just line up the files so that the answer comes right after the question. The advantage of doing separate sound recordings and synchronizing them, though, is that the sound quality will be the best that it can be. The important thing is to make sure that everybody records with the same settings. 44.1 kilohertz or better, uh, 16 bits, and mono rather than stereo, just to save space. The other option for recording multiple hosts in different locations is to have somebody record the entire conversation which honestly is not ideal. The only advantage to this is that the one recording captures everybody's voice and you don't need to sync up the sound files. A disadvantage in recording each person separately is that it opens the door for somebody's recording to somehow screw up. Jim and I actually had to re-record an episode a couple of times because one of us, I don't remember who, didn't realize that we forgot to hit record or we accidentally closed whatever program we were using to record before we saved it. But trust me on this, you do want to have separate recordings if at all possible. Someone I know who does a multi-host podcast actually has both individual recordings and as a backup, one master recording that has everybody's voice. So that way, if something goes wrong, there's still something to fall back on. But the problem with recording the entire conversation with the hosts being remote is that, well, everybody's over the internet. And when you listen to the recording it's going to be obvious that they're over the internet. If somebody has an internet connection glitch or somebody has a slow internet connection, it's going to be apparent really quickly. Another disadvantage of having just one recording for everybody is that what if somebody coughs or clears one's throat or sneezes or burps while somebody else is talking? There's nothing you can do about that. But if you have separate recordings, you can actually wipe that out from the individual recording. But with just one recording for everybody, there's not much you can do. The only thing you can do is if you notice unwanted noises happening while you're recording, have whoever was talking at the time repeat what was said during those noises so that way you kind of have a second take. Otherwise, you're screwed. Be prepared, however. If you have a special guest whom you can't record with in person, you may need to do the all-in-one recording technique, depending on how computer-savvy that guest is, and of course whether that guest has the necessary setup to record while talking, or whether or not that guest feels comfortable having the responsibility of maintaining his or her own recording while talking at the same time. But whatever the case, after you're done recording, editing, and mastering your episode, you have to publish it. How you publish the episode depends on the service you use to feed your podcast. The way I publish an autobiography of a schnook episode is upload the mp3 to my web hosting space and then I use the PowerPress WordPress plugin designed to publish podcasts. I tell that plugin the URL of the mp3 file and it pretty much automatically takes care of everything else. I think Libsyn does all the dirty work itself as well. When you're publishing the episode, you'll need to mark the episode explicit if there's any questionable language in it or else iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it may be called now, might stop carrying your podcast. Once the episode is published, it should show up on iTunes pretty much immediately, 
but other providers might have a bit of a delay. I think it takes an hour before it propagates on uh, Stitcher, for example. But one important thing to keep in mind, the content offers something that other podcasts don't. When Jim got the idea for Pie Factory Podcast, he didn't know that there was another arcade game podcast. But the hosts of that podcast said, well, there's always room for another podcast. But we still had to make ours different, just so it wouldn't be the same as uh, the other podcast. So what made Pie Factory different was that we came up with some twists that other arcade game podcasts usually don't do. Instead of talking about one game, we talk about two. And of course, as I said before, we tie them together with a theme. If you want to do a podcast about a particular topic, see if there's already a popular podcast in existence and still running about that topic. If there is one, then come up with a different way of presenting it or approach it from a different angle. What's really cool is if there isn't already a podcast covering your topic, then you're basically the only game in town. And ergo, you're likely to have a good chunk of those interested in that topic listening to you. And that's exactly what you want. Perhaps the most important thing about podcasting, though, have fun with it. If it becomes a chore, then it's going to show. You'll likely sound bored, and you won't be happy with the result. If you do get bored, and then, hey, take a break. Your listeners will understand. Just let them know you're taking a break. But otherwise, though, do your podcast and have fun with it, and your listeners will have fun, too. One thing I forgot to mention is if you talk about something that you found online, you should give your listeners kind of a link to it. Uh, this could be uh, a YouTube video you mentioned, or if there's something you talked about that has much more of a story to it than what you wanted to get involved with, put a link to that. If you use WordPress and I think Libsyn as your provider for your show, then guess what? You already have a built-in show notes page. You could just use Libsyn or WordPress. I use a separate site. Well, technically, the autobiography of a schnook site runs on WordPress. So I figured it's just easy enough to use that. And that's what I refer to as my online bibliography. That's the show notes. Because you see autobiography, I like to kind of keep a uh, book vibe going, if you will. And something else, I don't think that I mentioned this, but you might want to listen to your podcast before you publish it just to make sure that there isn't anything you might have forgotten to edit out. I listened to a couple of Autobiography of a Schnook episodes from earlier, and I noticed a few things that I meant to trim, because there are some things that I say twice, but I meant to trim out the worst take and just use the better take. There are some things I say twice when I forgot to trim out the take I didn't want to use. There are some things I said, oh, uh, you get the point. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, one thing I never mentioned before was that I like watching improv, and so one day I decided hmm, might be fun to actually learn how to do it, so I'm going to call this next portion of this chapter, Yes, And, and you'll understand why. If you live in Chicago, one thing you'll find yourself doing at some point is attending an improv show. Of course, the first thing you'll probably think of is the Second City, which is really more sketch comedy than improv. I would say about 75% of any Second City show is sketch and maybe 25% improv. The thing about Second City, though, uh, 
it's really gotten too big in recent years. I mean, for the longest time in Chicago, they had two theaters. There was the main stage and the ETC stage, plus a touring company. But now they have those two stages, the touring company, and then they have Donnie's Skybox, the Harold Ramis Film Theater, a stand-up comedy club, and various troops that they send out for cruises, corporate events, and the like. They have so many outlets that basically they have positions to fill that really means that a lot of the times you're not seeing the best that you could possibly see. The cast had gotten kind of mediocre, and the edginess that it was known for for years is pretty much gone. Probably the other big name in improv comedy in Chicago is I.O., formerly known as Improv Olympic, but 20 years after its opening, the International Olympic Committee threatened legal action. So the name was changed to I.O. Uh, they have two claims to fame, as I see it personally at least. One is a long-form style of improv called the Herald. That's what you would normally see at I.O. Uh, the Herald is an improvised sketch format devised by Second City alum Del Close. If you don't know who Del Close is, well, chances are you've actually seen him because he's one of Ferris Bueller's teachers. In what way... Does the author's use of the prison symbolize the protagonist's struggle? And how does this relate to our discussion of the uses of irony? The other claim to fame is TJ and Dave, a two-man improv show that is considered one of the best comedy shows in the city. My wife and I have been to several TJ and Dave shows, and they are truly something to behold. If you've ever watched network TV in the past several years, you likely have seen TJ Jagodowski. He's in the Sonic Drive-In commercials with Peter Gross. Yeah. It does beg one of the great existential questions. What's that? What came first, the popcorn or the chicken? Now, a typical improv sketch begins with a suggestion from the audience. The audience will be asked for, say, a location that can fit on the stage or maybe the name of a celebrity, and the cast just goes with the first suggestion they hear. It's up to the cast to make the sketch as concrete as possible, which is a little bit of a challenge because usually they don't use props in improv, they just have chairs. Well, TJ and Dave's shows are a bit different. When TJ and Dave first take the stage, they actually take the time to make eye contact with everybody in the audience during the applause. And then when the applause dies down, one of them says, trust us, this is all made up. And rather than take audience suggestions, they just start. They build a sketch out of improvised dialogue. Sometimes a sketch they do doesn't really go anywhere, and you can tell when they have that sense because all of a sudden, the subject and the mood changes abruptly. But when they have something good going, you will swear you actually can see everything in the scenery. It's one of those moments in which you can tell what color that, say, an imaginary cabinet is, even though they never even mention a color. If you prefer short-form improvised comedy, there's comedy sports, which, if I'm not mistaken, they actually originated in Madison, Wisconsin. And the reason it's called comedy sports is that it's actually competitive improv. You have two teams of improvisers that are competing, one wearing red jerseys, the other wearing blue jerseys. Uh, in Chicago, the red jersey team is called the Evanston Express, a pun based on the original name of the Chicago Transit Authority Purple Line. And the blue team is called the Chicago Bosses. You have a referee complete with a striped shirt announcing the improv games, determining who gets the points, and determining if there were any fouls committed during the games. 
One foul that the referee tells the audience about before the show even starts is the brown bag foul. The brown bag foul happens when anybody in the theater, whether it be a player, whether it be somebody in the audience, if any person says something inappropriate, like using a swear word or yelling something not family friendly, then that's called a brown bag foul. Comedy sports provides comedy that's suitable for the entire family. So if the referee hears someone saying something that violates that rule, then that person, whether it's one of the players or somebody in the audience, must wear a brown bag over his or her head until the current game or sketch is over. I think the last time I saw a brown bag foul happen, it was a woman who suggested stripper when the referee asked for a profession. Other comedy sports locations have the brown bag foul. I know they do that in Portland. Uh, I think there are some other locations that don't do the brown bag, but they have the potty mouth foul. Same thing, except they make you wear a toilet seat until the current game or sketch is over. But anyway, to keep the sports theme going, all comedy sports shows begin with the star-spangled banner, as if you were at a football game or a baseball game. And probably the most climactic part of any comedy sports show is before halftime. The team with the lower score gets to catch up by playing a game called Five Things. One member of the team is designated to play the game and has to leave the theater, accompanied by an audience member who will act as a witness to prove that the player was indeed gone and well out of hearing range of the theater. During that time, the referee and the remaining players will take audience suggestions. The first suggestion might be a celebrity. Then they'll ask what activity the celebrity is doing, and then where that activity is happening. That is the first of the five things. Four more of those things, usually a group consisting of a person, an activity, and a place. Four more suggestions are taken, and then the sequestered team player and the audience member are called back in. The player has five minutes to guess what each of the five things are, complete with activity and the location for each, basically every detail. And how does the player guess? Well, the player's teammates who are in the theater must provide the clues, but only by acting it out and speaking in complete gibberish. After every minute or so, the referee interrupts the proceedings and asks the player, the referee might say, okay, so the first thing, what are you doing? And the player will say, uh, uh, I'm Kim Kardashian, and I'm playing basketball with Abraham Lincoln in Paris, but instead of a basketball, we're using a shark. Uh, keep in mind, that entire sentence I gave you was just one thing. Yep, the team must act out Kim Kardashian and Abe Lincoln playing basketball with a shark. They actually do that. Somebody suggests basketball, the referee will say, okay, I heard basketball. Now, usually you play basketball with a big orange ball and you dribble it, but let's take that ball out and replace it with something else. And the audience might say, a shark. So, yeah. And if the player guesses wrong, the referee is going to say what, if anything, was correct, and the team will have a chance to fix it up. Keep in mind, this all has to be done in five minutes total. I've been to comedy sports several times, and I think maybe once I saw a team get all five things correct, but uh, it's usually pretty impressive when they get four. I know there are other places for comedy, but off the top of my head, the only other one I can think of is Annoyance Theater. I've never been there, but the Annoyance's claim to fame is an on-again, off-again show called Coed Prison Sluts. Also, when real-life Brady Bunch was in production in the uh, back in the 90s, the annoyance was its Chicago home. Interestingly, though, my first time seeing improv was the second city in Las Vegas. Before we even lived in Chicago, we checked out the second city in Vegas at the Flamingo when we were there on vacation once. 
Lisa and I would watch Whose Line Is It Anyway all the time. So we figured, hey, let's see an actual improv show. And to say that we were impressed would be a tragic understatement. Perhaps the thing that impressed me the most was that the cast had to improvise a five-minute multi-movement song based simply on the job of somebody they pulled up out of the audience. All I could think was, man, this makes Whose Line look incredibly easy. From the knowledge and research I've done about the Second City in the years following, I think that most, if not all, the show we saw consisted of sort of a best-of-Second-City-past kind of thing. Uh, There was a sketch that involved a principal being heckled when he introduced the Star-Spangled Banner, and there was another one when a priest and a nun were planning a funeral for a recently deceased nun, and they thought, well, you know, she had this record collection that she loved dearly, so I think as a nice tribute, we should play something from that record collection during her funeral. And it turned out that all the records were these Roaring Twenties dirty double entendre records. Uh, I remember Jason Sudeikis was in that cast. We, we actually went to a couple of more Second City shows in Vegas over the years. Uh, we were kind of disappointed because every time it got kind of less and less the prices went up and the casts were kind of lame uh i'm risking libel here but the last time we saw second city in vegas rob belushi was part of the cast and no he did not deserve that belushi name uh, from but i'm not gonna go any further in that uh i believe he was he's uh jim belushi's kid i think he's gone on to take dramatic roles in tv and stuff but anyway having said all that Both Lisa and I have taken improv classes at various times. Uh, Lisa at Second City and I.O. and uh, myself at Comedy Sports. And uh, I'd like to share some of the stuff that we've collectively learned about how the improv world works and how the actual performances work. Thinking about learning how to improvise, though, I'm reminded of something Pablo Picasso said. It took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. Picasso was referring to how a child doesn't learn the rules governing what you're theoretically supposed to do. Stay within the lines, use blue for the sky, green for the grass. So, being unaware that those rules exist, a child has all the artistic freedom in the world. But as an adult, you find it hard to unlearn those rules. Improv is very much like that. As you grow up, you learn not to talk to imaginary people about imaginary things. And after a while, you kind of forget how to do that. You kind of forget how to play cops and robbers. That's why it's often said that kids are the best improvisers. They're naturals. In terms of what improv really is, one instructor summed it up by saying, you move around and you say stuff. I guess that the single most important thing you're taught is the concept of yes and. That means that you take what you're given and you build on it. As in, yes, I hear you, and I'm going to run with it. If you think the action that you're doing during an improv scene is, say, spinning a basketball on your fingertip, but another actor on stage says, oh, sorry to interrupt you while you're tossing that pizza dough, then guess what? You're actually tossing pizza dough. That's what you go with. You don't say, no, I'm not. I'm spinning a basketball on my fingertip. Some improvisers would call that a no but. You're not supposed to say, no, but I'm doing this. You're supposed to say, "Uh, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. And you acknowledge that, yes, you are indeed tossing a pizza dough. Tim, my uh, 202 instructor at Comedy Sports, would call that pizza dough mention a gift. If you hear a piece of information from someone else on stage, that is a gift. Somebody asked Tim what he meant by gift, and Tim said, actually, 
I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. But I think I totally understood where he was going. When I'm told I'm tossing a pizza dough, my scene partner is giving me something to build off of, giving me a direction to take, so that way I don't have to think of it myself. So I will take that gift and yes, and it, and perhaps by taking some other advice that Tim preached in the world of comedy sports improv. Take a bad situation and make it worse. That'll always make it funnier. So not only will I acknowledge that I'm tossing a pizza dough, but I might also talk about how the last time I tried to toss pizza dough, the crust was really old and expired, and I unwittingly gave everybody in the restaurant food poisoning. Lisa said that one thing she was taught at Second City was to make your audience feel something, even if it's not necessarily funny. And I guess that's all about relationships, which I believe anybody in improv will tell you that is kind of important. If you're going through an exercise and you're improvising a sketch, your instructor is going to tell you, make it about your relationship. Even at comedy sports, where you're actually told, we're called comedy sports, so you do need to make it funny, they'll also tell you, make it about the two of you. You're tossing a pizza dough, great. Now make the focal point something about what you and your coworkers share. But anyway, when did I study improv? Um, uh, the thing is, I really don't remember for sure. My memory tells me it was 2011, but I might be wrong about that. I do remember, though, that when I took Comedy Sports' 101 class, it was around St. Patrick's Day, because Lisa asked me one day to stop at a liquor store on the way home and grab some tequila for a marinade she was making for tilapia. And I realized this was St. Patrick's Day. And I was walking through Chicago's biggest drinking district because the uh, practice space we we're using that day at Comedy Sports wasn't actually at the Comedy Sports Theater, but it was at a rehearsal space in Wrigleyville by Wrigley Field. Oh, what fun that was. Uh, anyway, let's get back to Sean and his adventures in learning improv. I decided to study improv because I loved watching it and I thought it'd be fun. And Comedy Sports 101, it was definitely fun. We had a great instructor. Uh, his name was Nick, and uh, Lisa actually knew him because Comedy Sports had a high school league, and he was the advisor for the high school league, and Lisa was the improv coach for her high school, so she knew Nick from that. Uh, the first things that I learned in 101 were not your standard improv games that you would see like on stage or on, say, Whose Line Is It Anyway, but I learned mostly exercises, and from what I understand, that's common in all schools of improv. You learn basic exercises, and later you use those exercises as warm-up activities. These exercise games are basically to help you learn to be prepared for interacting with others on stage. For example, there's one exercise in which you toss an imaginary colored ball to someone. How do you know what color it is? Well, you decide. You will pretend to toss, say, a red ball to somebody, and you say, red ball. The person who catches the imaginary ball will say, thank you, red ball. And then that person turns to someone else and tosses it and does the same thing. Red ball, etc. At some point during the game, whoever's leading the exercise will introduce another imaginary ball and toss it to someone, saying, green ball. And of course, that person says, thank you, green ball, and tosses it to someone else and says, green ball. By the end of the exercise, it becomes a juggling act, really, and there will likely at least be three colored balls in play, and sometimes the leader will get creative and throw in a different object, like a toaster or something, and whoever leads the exercise at the end will ask who has which ball. Okay, who has the green ball? Who has the blue ball? Who has the toaster? And if everybody did what they were supposed to do, 
somebody will have at least one of each of the objects. Like somebody might have the red ball, somebody else will have the green ball, third person will have the blue one, the fourth person will have the toaster. If nobody claims possession of one of those, it's basically a sign that somebody dropped something and didn't communicate properly. (laughs) Sometimes one person will have more than one ball or more than one object, and that's not unusual, actually. And it's actually a pretty impressive feat. (laughs) But anyway, uh, there's another common improv exercise that we learned. It's a game called Big Booty. One person in the group is designated Big Booty, and the remainder of the group forms a circle around Big Booty and faces Big Booty. Each person in the circle will count off a number. For example, if you have 11 people in that circle, each person will be somewhere between number 1 and number 11, inclusive. At the start of the round, the group in unison chants, Big Booty, Big Booty, Big Booty, and then Big Booty calls himself out, followed by calling out somebody else's number. For example, Big Booty might say, Big Booty, number 2. And then whoever number two is will acknowledge his own number and then call out another person. For example, number two might say, number two, number eight. And then number eight must respond, number eight, and then announce another player, etc., 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 until the rhythm is broken or a rule is violated. The rules are simple. You can only pass on to another player by calling out either the player's number or you can pass it to Big Booty. For example, number eight might want to pass it to Big Booty, so he might say, number eight, Big Booty. You cannot pass it back to someone who just called you out either. Like if number two passes on to number eight, then number eight can't give it back to number two. Whoever messes up becomes Big Booty. I know that explanation might be hard to follow, but if you go to YouTube and type Big Booty Improv in the search field, you'll find plenty of examples of Big Booty in action. And for the love of God, make sure you include the word improv in your search. The first actual improv game that Nick taught us was a pretty basic thing called What Are You Doing? You're paired up with another improviser who is doing something, really, an action that begins with a letter decided by the referee, who might say, J. You ask that person, What are you doing? And then that person responds with an action that starts with the letter J. That person might say, Jumping rope. And then you have to act like you're jumping rope. That's right. Not the person you asked, but basically whatever the other person claims to do, you're the one actually doing it. And then, of course, you have to say something else that starts with J. So the dialogue might be something like, person number one says, what are you doing? Person number two says, jumping rope. And then person number one jumps rope and person number two says, what are you doing? And just the process repeats until somebody messes up by either hesitating or saying something that doesn't begin with the letter J. And when you do mess up, then somebody else takes your place. Nick was very strict about having the first word out of your mouth in response to the what are you doing question begin with a designated letter. He did not like it if somebody responded, say, I'm jumping rope. That's considered a foul because the first word out of your mouth was not beginning with the letter J. The activity was, but you're not supposed to say I'm. During class, when we would do what are you doing, Nick would allow one I'm slip up, but he would warn us. He said, that's your last one. When we did our 101 student show, I was hoping that during what are you doing, I would be paired up with Dave in our class. Dave was an air traffic controller by day, opera singer by night. 
and I was praying that I would be paired up with him and that the letter would be S so that uh, when Dave would say to me, what are you doing? I would say singing opera just so that I could hear him burst into an aria or something. Oh, well, by the way, chances are slim to none that you'll ever see the game. What are you doing at something other than a student show? It's extremely basic and not exactly the funniest thing in the world. Looking back, I think it was basically an exercise in learning how to yes and properly. Take what you're given and go with it. Come to think of it, I don't really remember a lot of the games we learned in the 101 class. But one in particular that I remember is a pretty common improv game. I don't know what the name of it is, but it usually involves three people improvising a scene for 60 seconds. Then the referee stops the proceedings and announces that they're going to redo the exact same scene, but in 30 seconds and then 15, and it might go on like that. The referee might have you do 10 seconds and 5 seconds. I've seen it go as low as 3 seconds before. Usually the last few rounds of this game involve a lot of running and screaming for people frantically trying to do the whole thing so fast, and that's what makes it pretty much always funny. But it did provide a useful skill. How do you make something shorter? You trim the fat. You take away what's not essential. I quickly found out that I'm terrible at moving around during a sketch. I'd usually just stand there and talk. So during our student show, when this game came up, the other two improvisers I was teamed with knew that I wasn't good at moving around, so they were able to improvise a situation that didn't require that I move a lot. And that worked out pretty well, actually. The other game I remember learning in Comedy Sports 101 is called 185. This is actually a warm-up exercise that most improv theaters used just like to, well, warm up, I guess. But at comedy sports, it's an actual onstage game. 185 is a pun game involving the old uh, walks into a bar joke. The referee will take a suggestion from the audience, and the people on stage are to come up with a funny or groan-inducing pun based on that suggestion. The example the referee always gives when introducing 185 is, for example, if I say bananas, you might want to come up and say, 185 bananas walk into a bar. The bartender says, we don't serve bananas, so they split. Basically, if you have something to contribute, you step to the front and center of the stage. They call that position the burn box. You deliver your punchline, and if the referee likes it, your team gets a point. Usually, this is the last game in a comedy sports show, and it's the last chance for the losing team to come back and win. Now, this game offered me a time to shine because I was fortunate enough to have the late Father Ray Foster as my physics teacher in high school. I don't think his first language was actually English. It was punnery. If you ever tried to match his quick-witted puns, you would be savagely attacked in a 60-second stream of punnery that would make you curl up in a ball and crawl under a bed whimpering. Sometimes he'd have cafeteria duty, and he'd come over to my table and do half an hour just on whatever food somebody was eating. So my friend Andy wanted to get him back. He was planning to pull out a fork and get Father Ray with a, Get the fork out of here! Well, somebody else at our table got wind of that little plan and actually took Andy's fork and hit it when he wasn't looking. So as we expected, here comes Father Ray, and he started attacking us with a barrage of lunch puns. Meanwhile, Andy was frantically looking for his fork, and when he finally found it under John Anderson's books, he grabbed it, pointed it at Father Ray, and said, Get the fork out of here! And without missing a beat, Father Ray just grinned and responded, Looks like you found it just in time. <sighs> so, yeah, being in this guy's presence for a year gave me a lot of insight into the world of punnery. 
At the end of our 101 student show, we did a few rounds of 185. Somebody in the audience suggested shoes. I thought of something, so I stepped into the burn box and said, 185 shoes walk into a bar. The bartender said, we don't serve shoes here. The shoes said, why? The bartender says, because they pay less. They cut the lights and the game ended. And that usually happens when something really good happened and they basically want to end on a good note. So yeah, I ended the show with that. Ha! Anyway, gloat time over. Why did they call it 185? Why did it have to be 185 whatever is walking to it? I don't know. I never did know. I don't remember if I asked Nick about that or what. But anyway, I did go on to Comedy Sports 202, and Lisa actually joined me for that. She had already studied improv at Second City, and Comedy Sports' rule was if you already had improv somewhere else, then you can skip 101. 202 focused almost exclusively on scene work. What did I learn in 202? I learned that I cannot act. I just can't. And as a result, I didn't like the class. Don't get me wrong, I liked the other students, and Tim was a great instructor. I really liked him. I just didn't like the material. I wondered why we were spending so much time doing extended scene work when just about all comedy sports' games were just quick bursts that didn't get deep involved in sketches at all. But I did have one pretty useful takeaway from my time in 202. Just because you're given an audience suggestion, it does not mean the sketch has to be about that particular suggestion. For example, during one exercise, I was paired up with Ben, and uh, Tim gave us a suggestion of Harry Potter. In improv, you're told to just start with the first thing that comes to mind. Naturally, being familiar with the Harry Potter saga, I read all the books. I started in as if I were a Harry Potter character, uh, most likely a Slytherin, and approached Ben with an imaginary wand and threatened him with an Expelliarmus spell. Well, it turned out that Ben had absolutely zero clue what Harry Potter was all about. He never read the books, he never saw the movies, and I didn't quite know what to do about that. I mean, Ben had a good way to deal with it. In character, he said, oh, come on, you know I don't like Harry Potter, can we play something else? Let's go outside and play basketball or something. Somehow I was so stuck in my moment that I couldn't figure out that he was interpreting it that we were potentially two kids acting out a Harry Potter scene as part of a play date or something. Tim saw what Ben was doing, though, and he did explain that sometimes you just won't know anything about the topic presented to you, and you have to work around it somehow. Kind of reminds me of something Nick said. Nick said that when you do improv, you have to learn everything you possibly can about everything you possibly can. But Tim emphasized that even though he gave us Harry Potter, it didn't mean that we had to improvise something about Harry Potter. We just had to use it as a jumping off point. I saw a great opportunity for that knowledge to be put in place when I watched a high school tournament once. During one of the games, somebody in the audience suggested backgammon. By the way, here's a huge difference between actual live improv and, say, whose line is it anyway? On whose line the host usually picks and chooses from various things the audience yells out, but in the real world, as it were, you have to go with the first thing you hear. So backgammon it was. And it was clear that most of these poor kids had no idea what backgammon is. One girl actually got into a batting stance. She thought that the word was batgammon. It might have been that they were never told the scene doesn't have to be about the suggestion, but just inspired by the suggestion. With 2020 hindsight, I see that the scene could have been perhaps saved by improvising a game of Scrabble and someone put down the word backgammon for a good score. 
man, I couldn't wait for 202 to be over. I, I just could not act. On top of that, I really didn't want to act. If I ever wanted to delve seriously into maybe performing at comedy sports, I felt that I didn't really need to do any acting because any sketches would be very short. So I was really looking forward to 303, which, as we were told, was games. We'd learn most of the crazy competitive stuff rather than acting. Weirdest thing about my memories of Comedy Sports 303, the thing that I remember the most isn't the interaction with my classmates, it wasn't learning the games, but it was where we held class. Most of 101 and 202 were held at the Comedy Sports Theater, usually on the actual performance stage. But 303, for some reason, was held, uh, I don't know how to describe it, not really a garage, maybe it was a garage, I don't know, but it was a huge, wide-open space in the bottom of a house. It was kind of weird. And there was a hole in the floor that Sarah, our instructor, uh, she and many of us students theorized what it might have been. And the the most agreed with theory is, uh, well, well, something too naughty to mention in this podcast. Interestingly, it was during 303 when we learned exactly why comedy sports makes a big deal about keeping it clean on stage and implementing the brown bag file I mentioned earlier. In Chicago, there are a lot of comedy shows out there, a lot of improv, a lot of sketch comedy. But outside of comedy sports, there was no comedy show in Chicago that could guarantee family friendliness. However, comedy sports had several locations around the country. I think there's even one outside of the United States. And in places where comedy sports is the only game in town, they might not have that watch-your-language rule. Sarah told us, though, keep the language clean, period. In that same conversation, she told us about how shows she used to do with the Second City that were specifically done for corporate team-building events were called no shows. Uh, That is, shows in which you don't drop the F-bomb or other really harsh language because, well, you don't want to go overboard with questionable language in front of your corporate clients. One of the games that Sarah had us go through was called Spelling Bee, and I was particularly looking forward to that because the first time I ever went to a comedy sports show, I saw that game, and I seldom laughed so hard in my life. Everybody on the team stands in a line and links arms, and they speak only one word or letter at a time per person. Think three-headed opera star if you ever watch Whose Line Is It Anyway. The referee starts the game by asking the audience for a word of first-grade difficulty, And usually you'll hear something like cat or something. The players as a team announce the word and then they spell it. Each person taking one letter. Cat! C-A-T! Cat! Wow. Wow. Amazing. The referee then asks the team for a definition or for a use in a sentence. So the team responds with the definition or a sentence with each player saying just one word. Finally, everybody on the team announces the word again and bows. Champion, will you please uh, use the word cat in a sentence? When a cat came, I said, wow. (laughs) The game goes on for a few rounds, with each round having a word of a higher grade level, a higher difficulty. Sarah told us, and please spell the word right, which was strange because one of the reasons I laughed so hard when I saw this game was that with each word, the pace got so fast and frantic that it seemed that the players on the team were just yelling out the first letters they could think of, or they just yell out syllables. Marine biologist. M-A-R-I-N-E. Space. B. O. L. O. Ist. Marine biologist. 
I think it was 303 when I formally learned the game Four Corners, or as it's called in some places, Four Square. If you've never been to an improv show, I can almost promise you that you will see this game when you do go to an improv show, except maybe at I.O. Four improvisers take the stage and arrange themselves two by two in a square, hence the name Four Square. The two people in front are assigned a scene or situation based on an audience suggestion. Then the referee will say something like, rotate right. So the player who's already on stage right will go back, and the player who's on the left moves right, etc. Basically, the whole group rotates by one person. So now you have a new pair up front, and one of the people in that pair was in the previous pair, and that pair is given a suggestion. And basically, that goes on until every possible combination is given a scene suggestion. So yeah, this means that everybody on stage is assigned two different scenes and has to remember what scene that person is doing with the other person up front. On paper, I never really found this game to be too exciting. Just sounds too generic. But then when I see the game in action, it occurs to me why it exists. First off, it's pretty impressive to watch somebody seamlessly transition from one scene to another and back when the referee tells the team to rotate at random times. Also, the referee will actually say which direction to rotate, right or left, and almost invariably somebody's going to try to rotate the wrong way, which is always good for a cheap laugh. More often than not at a comedy sports show, I will see four corners played, or four square, where three team players are in the game, and they fill in that fourth person with somebody they pull up from the audience. It's a simple enough game to explain to a random person off the street, and it's pretty impressive when that person does a good job at it. Then there's another game. It's similar to the Spelling Bee. It's called Dr. Know-It-All. It's the same setup as Spelling Bee. The team lines up in Link's arms. Each member of the team makes up one character called, of course, Dr. Know-It-All. All players are essentially the exact same person. When the referee introduces the game, she or he will say that each member of the team shares one brain and that the character with the shared brain is Dr. Know-It-All. So the referee will take questions from the audience and Dr. Know-It-All answers the question with each person on the team saying one word at a time. Why is there air? Yes, Doctor. Why is there air? The reason there is air is because we would die if we didn't have air. I think my favorite memory of seeing this game in action was when I watched Lisa play it during a student showcase. The question was, where is the lost city of Atlantis? The team answered, one person at a time, of course, the lost city of Atlantis is in. And then when it was Lisa's turn for the next word, she blurted out the first thing that came to mind, Cleveland. And it was so abrupt, so sudden, so unexpected that it got a big laugh, prompting the team to consider that question fully answered. So they took a bow. Sarah also took us through some games that fall under the category of conducted games, meaning that during the game, the referee points to you when it's your turn to say something. Now, it's my own vanity that makes me particularly remember one that I think was called Conducted Story. Based on an audience suggestion, the team makes up a story on the spot, and when the referee points to you, you tell the story, and when the referee points to someone else, You stop talking and the other person continues exactly where you left off, whether it's in the middle of the sentence or whatever. If that person hesitates before speaking, repeats the last word or two where you left off, or continues in a way that is just not syntactically correct at all, then that player is out. 
You keep repeating until there's only one person left, and that person, of course, is the winner. Sometimes the referee is very strict and will call you out if you're pointed to when the previous person is in the middle of the word and you don't actually finish the word. For example, the person before you might say, but Molly didn't, and then the referee might point to you. You actually have to finish the word didn't. You actually have to say, no, that, and if you miss that, then you're out. Sarah wasn't that strict, though, but something she would do is once in a while, she might point at two people. And if you've never seen this game, trust me, this part is always funny. The two people will have to say the exact same thing. They would have to look at each other and kind of guide each other to what the next word is. Oh, man. Uh, Sometimes comedy sports throws in a little twist and calls it conducted story international. Not only do you have to improvise the story, but you also have to do it in an accent. Sarah said it would always be a European accent of some sort because anything else would be considered offensive. Now, here's where my vanity comes in. During class, I won a game of Conducted Story International, and my assigned accent was Irish. I've mentioned in a previous episode, I just cannot do accents, but I managed to win the game regardless, and I felt so smug. The other conducted game I remember was one that I specifically requested we go through called Left Hand Larry. I always loved watching this game. The same game goes by other names at other places, including other comedy sports locations, but Left Hand Larry goes like this. Both teams form a single line across the stage. The referee will take a suggestion of a category from the audience, like, say, breakfast cereals or Simpsons characters. When the referee points to you, you need to say something that falls under that category. The referee points to you, if if the category is breakfast cereals, you say Rice Krispies. If the category is Simpsons characters, you might say Chief Wiggum. If you hesitate, say something that's not in the designated category, or say something that was already said, then you've committed a foul, and you must raise your right hand and keep it up for the remainder of the game. The process then repeats, but with a new category. Anybody who commits a foul and already has a right hand up is out of the game, and whoever's last on stage wins the game for his or her team. You don't really need a class to learn this game, I just taught you the rules right now. I think I actually remember more from watching it than I do from playing it. I think the first time I saw this game, someone suggested old people names as the category, and it was fun watching the players actually act old when they said their answers. Hubert, Bertha. I think Abe Rabinowitz once said, um, I'm old Ed. And he was out because that didn't count. (laughs) There was one time I went to comedy sports and I suggested Chicago street names, but the referee had to stop and make a new rule when players were exploiting a loophole by calling out the numbered street names. Someone would say 47th and then someone else would say, uh, 48th. (laughs) The referee had to stop and say, okay, no more numbers, no more numbers. But I think I remember most about that time was the referee called a foul on a player and said that the player's answer was not a street name in Chicago, only to have somebody in the audience walk up to the referee and show his driver's license with a Chicago address with that street. So yeah, referees do make mistakes sometimes. Uh, Their word usually is final, but unlike in professional sports, they do admit when they're wrong. Oh, by the way, in 101, Nick told us that when he's the referee, He will intentionally make certain decisions as to whether or not to allow certain things just to keep the scores between the two teams as close as possible to build up excitement. 
Oh, by the way, when Lisa and I went to a comedy sports show in Portland back in 2015, I think it was. Yeah, 2015. One of the categories during Left Hand Larry was Monty Python. Well, after one of the answers a player gave, um, it might have been Dead Parrot, I don't remember for sure. The referee paused the game, turned to the audience and said, um, I don't really know Monty Python. Is that, is that a Python reference? Lisa and I were stunned. I mean, how can you possibly work in comedy without knowing Monty Python? But having said that, 303 was as far as Lisa and I both went in the comedy sports program. I don't know why Lisa didn't go any further, but as for me, I just realized I much preferred improv as a spectator rather than as a performer. Plus, Lisa and I missed a few sessions during 303, and we were going to miss the student showcase, and that would have put us over the maximum allowed absences without having to retake the course to move on to 404. Also, just to get on stage outside of a student showcase requires way too much commitment for something I just thought of doing for fun every now and then. If you want to get on stage, it means that essentially you're looking to do comedy as a career, and I didn't want to take up some room when somebody else who really wanted to do this possibly for a living could have been in that space that I was taking up. But not only that, but if you're an improv actor and looking to make a career out of what you're doing... You have to be working nonstop and at multiple places, not just for exposure and experience, but also just to make rent. Improv does not pay well at all. Nick himself, he told us that not only did he work at comedy sports, but he also performed in other places. I think the annoyance in IO, and he was also in Baby Wants Candy, which was an improvised musical that was going on in town. Really, don't be surprised if you go to multiple shows somewhere at different comedy locations and you see some of the same people. It's pretty much the norm. Also, I I just didn't feel I was very good. Sure, I could have gone on and improved, but it wasn't necessarily something I wanted to improve on. I took improv classes, I had my fun, and that was enough for me. I guess I really don't need to yes and my reasons for not doing improv, really. Meanwhile, I'll just sit back and enjoy watching other people do it. And I really hope those who are doing it are also enjoying it at the same time. After all, that's the important thing. You know what? I realized I made a mistake when I was talking about Conducted Story, which I've confirmed is the actual name, by the way. I said that the team makes the story. Actually, both teams together improvise the story, not just one team. The one player who is left wins the points for that player's particular team. By the way, some comedy troops do a variation in which someone messes up, the audience yells, die! And the person who messes up does this over-dramatized death and collapses right there on stage with everybody else. And also, I found it interesting that... There is an actual improv game called What Are You Doing? Because probably the worst thing you could ever say in an improv sketch is, what are you doing? Because that does not move the sketch forward. You're supposed to give, not ask. If you have to ask, what are you doing? It's, well, pretty taboo unless you provide something further, like, what are you doing with that frog? Something else that... Sarah, the 303 instructor, did. She would end every class by having everybody kind of huddle slash group hug. 
And we would kind of just look at each other and say, thank you. And then that person would say, you're welcome. And then look at someone else and say, thank you. And it's kind of like that red, green, blue ball exercise that I talked about before. And having said that, I just want to say thank you. Thank you sincerely for listening to this episode. And it was nice to do, uh, given the uncertain times that we're doing. So I just wanted to end this episode by saying that, wait, wait, no, no. No, I'm not ending the episode because there's still one more thing to do. <laughs> How can I forget music for schnooks, music for schnooks. And this time I'm going to address something very specific and it's going to be kind of a short segment. I'm going to talk about what I think is perhaps the most important moment in the Beatles artistic development. Yep. It's going to be a Beatles segment because in case you didn't know, I kind of like the Beatles. So Yeah. So into music for schnooks, we are going. Recently in a Beatles forum, someone said, what do you feel was the Beatles' most important song? Some said, I want to hold your hand, obviously, because, well, that's the song that finally got the Beatles' success here in America. Others said, hey Jude, because of what a massive hit it was. Many would say Love Me Do because it was their official debut single and was a relative success. I, however, suggested something completely off the wall, like dreamers do. I, I saw a girl in my dreams, and so it seems that I will love her Wait, what? Yeah, even some first-generation Beatles fans don't know about that obscure song, but just stay with me here. On New Year's Day 1962, the Beatles, uh, back when Pete Best was the drummer, were in London and recorded a 15-song audition tape for Decca Records. Among those 15 songs were three Lennon-McCartney originals, one called Like Dreamers Do. Of course, we fans all know that Decca turned down the Beatles, but at the very least, the band walked away with a copy of that audition tape so they could shop it around to the other record labels. Unfortunately, though, that tape was shopped around to almost every label in England to no avail. One story that I heard was that somebody jokingly told the Beatles, you can always audition for George Martin at Parlophone. <laughs> uh, why was that a joke, though? Well, because George Martin's specialty at EMI's Parlophone label was producing comedy records. He tried to produce some mainstream music, but he just could not get a hit. So as the story goes, he was effectively demoted to comedy records and wasn't really taken seriously over at Abbey Road. The Beatles, however, actually took that advice. I mean, after all, they didn't have much other choice. Also, George Martin produced a comedy troupe called The Goons, of whom the Beatles were major fans. You know what it's like to be in the thick of a bloody battle with bullets flying and sabers clashing? No. Pity, I was hoping you'd tell me what it was like. <laughs> the other story comes from Mark Lewison. I've mentioned Mark in previous episodes. He is perhaps the utmost authority on The Beatles. The story he tells in his book, Tune In, which is part one of his definitive Beatles biography, is that the Beatles audition tape was brought over to EMI. The folks over there weren't impressed by the performances, but the song, Like Dreamers Do, caught their ears. They thought it was a pretty good tune and were impressed that it was the group's original song and that it wasn't a cover. So EMI agreed to sign the Beatles, but not because of their performance. Instead, 
EMI wanted access to what the Lennon-McCartney songwriting duo could crank out. They couldn't care less about the scruffy band itself. So what do they do about this scruffy northern band that nobody really cared about? Well, they give it to the producer that nobody cared about. They said, hey, let's toss the Beatles over to Mr. No-Hit George Martin. Let him deal with them. Of course, (laughs) making a long story a lot less long, uh, that little plot backfired because George Martin turned the Beatles into the huge success that they became by early 1963. Many fans, including me, considered George Martin to be the fifth Beatle because of how he nurtured the band's creativity and how he added his own touches of genius. And um, George's touches of genius hugely contributed to what I feel is artistically the Beatles' most important song, John Lennon's Strawberry Fields Forever. In late November 1966, the Beatles started working on what has been considered their masterpiece, the album that would become Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Just two and a half months earlier, the group played its final formal concert at Candlestick Park, wearing matching suits like they always had done before, and of course they had their famous mop-top hairstyles. A big change was about to come, though. The Beatles would no longer go out on tour, but instead they would concentrate on working in the studio and growing artistically. Strawberry Fields Forever and Paul McCartney's Penny Lane were the first two songs recorded for that album, with the intention that the songs on said album would be kind of a retrospective, looking back on the things that they knew in their lives back in Liverpool. Penny Lane, of course, was both a street and a neighborhood in Liverpool, and Strawberry Field was a Salvation Army children's home. Sometimes Lennon would gate-crash Strawberry Field after school and play with the kids who lived there. His Aunt Mimi, who raised him, warned him to stop trespassing at Strawberry Field or else they'd hang him. It's nothing to get hung about, she reportedly told him. In the end, though, neither of those two songs was included on the album because the Beatles were asked to release a single. They were due for another single, so those were the two songs that were already finished, ready to go, so they ended up being a single, and because of the Beatles' no singles on albums policy, the two songs were not included on the album. Penny Lane was the A-side, Strawberry Fields Forever was the B-side. When you listen to those two songs, well, first of all, it's obvious why Penny Lane was chosen as the A-side, because it was much more commercial. But when you listen to those two songs, while both involved looking back on childhood memories, the feel and contents of the songs are vastly different. Penny Lane, whose backing track is loosely based on the Beach Boys' Wouldn't It Be Nice, is a straightforward, uncomplicated, and relatively conventional song, very commercial, like I just said. The lyrics are, for the most part, pretty clear and concrete. Meanwhile, the B-side, Strawberry Fields Forever, is quite the opposite. It's a complicated piece of work full of experimentation and psychedelia with very abstract lyrics. The single is a wonderful example of the dichotomies of the styles of Lennon and McCartney. They both say essentially the same thing, but in vastly different ways. And this isn't the first time a Beatles single presented such a dichotomy. Consider the 1964 single with John Lennon's I Feel Fine on the A-side and Paul McCartney's She's a Woman on the B-side. In my personal opinion, at least, they are two 
excellent recordings, and they're a perfect example of Lennon and McCartney matching each other in theme, both lyrically and musically. Yeah, musically, the two songs sound a little different, but they each offer a similar vibe and experimentation. I Feel Fine has that famous intro that was the result of a studio accident, what with the A note plucked on McCartney's bass causing the A string on another guitar to resonate. Uh, Many people say that it's feedback, but uh, I don't know. I don't think it's feedback per se, but uh, nonetheless, it still sounds pretty cool. Uh, By the way, bragging moment for me here. Most intense Beatles fans know about the version of I Feel Fine that starts off with some whispering, and it only appeared on European pressings of the uh, 1962-1966 two-record compilation, sometimes known as the Red Album. Well, I happened to find a French pressing on red vinyl one day some years ago, and it looks gorgeous, too. Uh, It actually has that whisper intro. Uh, Here, let's listen to it. She's a woman, no less the rocker that I Feel Fine is, has kind of an unusual rhythm, so experimental in a way because it was unusual for the Beatles at least at that time. It has a syncopated rhythm with the accents on the one and the three, rather than the usual two and four. Another single I like to point out when thinking of this Lennon vis-a-vis McCartney pairing is the 1966 pairing of Paul McCartney's Paperback Writer and John Lennon's Rain. Musically, the songs sound very related. Both songs are (laughs) loud-ish. Both songs are in the key of G, although Rain was actually recorded in a higher key but slowed down during mastering. Lyrically, the two songs couldn't be further separated. Musically, however, once again, McCartney and Lennon are saying essentially the same thing, but each in his own way. As was typical, the McCartney side of the single was more commercial, pretty straightforward. Lennon's side was more artsy and experimental, what with that backward vocal at the end. Now, going back to Strawberry Fields Forever, it is a strong example of John Lennon's artful experimentations, and in the end, George Martin's nurturing of such experimentations. But let's take a look at the evolution of that song. The Beatles made three different attempts at recording the song. The first version was pretty simple and really mellow. Guitars, lead and background vocals, light percussion, and this newfangled instrument called a Mellotron, a keyboard instrument that literally plays recordings with each key you press. Uh, Really, it's an early version of a sampling keyboard. Including an unusual instrument in Strawberry Fields Forever actually predates the first studio recording of the song. Uh, Sean, what are you talking about? Oh, listen to me, sporty. Many fans have heard Lennon's acoustic and electric guitar demos of the song, but arguably, the song may have been worked on as early as February 1964. Watch that documentary called The First U.S. Visit. There's a scene in the Beatles' suite at the Plaza Hotel in New York City. There's a brief moment when John Lennon is playing around with a melodica, an instrument that was never actually used on a Beatles recording. And he plays something that sounds dangerously close to the intro to Strawberry Fields Forever. Channel 
The next version the Beatles recorded had a similar orchestration, uh, just a basic setup, drums, maracas, guitars, bass, vocals, uh, this time a solo vocal from John Lennon, and again, the Mellotron. Except for that Mellotron, though, there wasn't really anything unusual with the recording, but still wanting to try another arrangement, the Beatles recorded a third version of the song. But this time it was vastly different. Instead of the mellow, almost dreamy pop song that the first two versions were, the third version was a loud, up-tempo recording with strings, horns, backward cymbals, a swarmandal, uh, which is basically an Indian auto harp, and pounding drums with a fade-out that dissolved into a cacophony that included electric guitar and mellotron. Effective December 15th, the Beatles had three complete versions of Strawberry Fields Forever in the can. But which one would be released? That decision was up to the song's composer. John Lennon dismissed version one, but he liked versions two and three equally, and he wanted to use both somehow, so he asked George Martin to edit the two together. Well, George argued that it would be impossible because version two was slower and in the key of A, and version three was faster and in the key of B. They just wouldn't work together. But John insisted that they still somehow release both versions in one song. He said to George, I know you can find a way. But uh, what to do, what to do? Hmm. Oh, maybe speeding up the slower version in the lower key and slowing down the faster version in the higher key would uh, somehow make it work. Well, that's exactly what George Martin did. Speeding up version two a bit and slowing down version three a bit brought both versions to the same key, allowing for a better chance for a seamless transition. Not only that, but the two versions were now pretty close in tempo as well, although version three is still slightly faster. When you listen to the final version of Strawberry Fields Forever that would be released in 1967, you hear version two first, and then version three carefully spliced together at the second chorus, specifically on the word going. Some find the edit to be nothing short of genius, while to others, uh, including the late Sir George Martin himself, others think it's a terrible edit. Now, you can count me among those who think that the edit is brilliant. I never even noticed that there was an edit until I read about it in Mark Lewison's 1987 book, The Beatles Recording Sessions. Lewison told you exactly where to hear the edit, and he warned readers that once you learn where the edit is, you'll never hear the song the same way again. Uh, personally, I disagree with that assertion. That wasn't my experience. But again, though, the edit is on the word going. I don't know if this is what Sir George intended, but that the edit is on that particular word is pretty symbolic. Remember, version two, which is what makes up the recording until that word going, isn't all that unusual for a Beatles recording, really. Guitars, drums, bass, and an unusual instrument. A practice that goes all the way back to George Harrison's 1963 song, Don't Bother Me, which uses an African drum. In other words, that first part of Strawberry Fields Forever is the Beatles as the world had always known them, albeit with evidence of gradual artistic evolution. But then, all of a sudden, going. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields. The sound of the song changes drastically, 
to a brand new Beatles that would shape the sound of 1967 and arguably the future of rock and roll. Going. As in the Beatles you knew and loved were going away and the new Beatles were about to take over. The old Beatles are gone and they're not coming back. And they never did come back. Well, once 1970 happened, they never came back in any real way, actually, did they? But hey, that was chapter 19 of Autobiography of a Schnook. And I thank you all for listening. As always, you can reach me via email at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And schnookpodcast is also my Twitter and Instagram handle. I hardly ever use Instagram. I should really change that, huh? And uh, you can follow me on Facebook as well. I'm considering putting a presence on me, we also, uh, but uh, Google plus probably not, probably not Google plus as usual. I thank Lisa for her support, her encouragement. And what else can I say except stay healthy, everybody. And thank you for being with me. And uh, assuming that we're still locked in uh, next time, there's a new chapter out, then, Hey, I'll be there for you to, uh, give you something to listen to hopefully make your lock-in a little less i don't know unpleasant or maybe more pleasant if you like being locked in me personally i don't mind i don't mind but uh, hope you do well hope things get better for you and uh, i still strongly believe the good goes around it'll especially go around if we all do what we can to make sure that everybody is safe and healthy all the best my friends And now, Sean will do this entire episode again, but only in 30 seconds. Hey everybody, it's Sean. Welcome to Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 19. I hope everybody's being safe and healthy out there. First, let's talk about how to do a podcast. Use some good equipment, use some free software. Have fun with it, don't forget to edit. Oh, and uh, by the way, I like improv too. Well, just say the first thing that comes to your mind. And anyway, you know about the Beatles? The most important thing is that edit in Strawberry Fields Forever on the word going. Wow, pretty genius, isn't it? Yes, it is. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. And now he's going to do it again in 15 seconds. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 19. This is Sean, your host. Hey, you want to know how to do a podcast? Use good equipment, edit properly, and have fun. Hey, improv. I like watching it, but not doing it. Strawberry Fields Forever, going. Greatest edit ever. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good night. And finally, three seconds. Have fun with your podcast. It started improv. Strawberry Fields Forever. Yay. Bye. Oh, boy. One second. Schnook!